When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. When Tecumseh rose to speak, as he cast his gaze over the vast multitude of which the interesting occasion collected together, he appeared of one of the most dignified men I ever beheld. While this orator of nature was speaking, the vast crowd preserved the most profound silence. From this confidence manner, he spoke of the intention of the Indians to adhere to the treaty and live in peace and friendship with their white brethren. He dispelled as if by magic the apprehension of the whites. The settlers immediately returned to their farm, and the active hum of business was resumed in every direction. John MacDonald Father, I am very sorry that you listened to the advice of bad birds. You have impeached me with having correspondence with the British and with calling and sending for the Indians from the most distant parts of the country, to listen to a fool that speaks not the words of the Great Spirit, but the words of the devil. Father, these impeachments I deny, and say they are not true. I never had a word with the British, and I never sent for the Indians. They came here themselves to listen and hear the words of the Great Spirit. Father, I wish you would not listen any more to the voice of the bad birds. You may rest assured... It is the least of our idea to make disturbances, and we will rather try to stop such proceedings than encourage them. Tenskatawa, as recorded by John Connor. As we've already seen, the events that led up to what we now know of as the War of 1812 involved disparate individuals and groups spread across a wide geography. In this episode, we'll be returning our focus to the native peoples of North America and, as the title of this episode suggests, getting acquainted with two men who play a large role in the coming war. Before we do that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry, and this episode is being recorded on the homeland of the Chura, Manoye Iswahele, Arcataba, and Sugary Nations. Special thanks to Eric and Matt of the Ranking 76 podcast for providing the intro quotes for this episode. As soon as I started working on the script for this episode, I reached out to them as they seemed a perfect fit to read the opening quotes as they did episodes on Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa on their podcast. I can only hope that they feel that this episode does both of these historic figures justice. To those who have not listened to Ranking 76 yet, Eric and Matt are examining the lives and legacies of 76 individuals who are part of the history of the American West. Their subjects range from George Armstrong Custer to Annie Oakley to Sitting Bull to the Donner Party. They talk about folks who are well-known to the general public, as well as some lesser-known individuals that are still quite fascinating, be they heroes or villains. Beyond just producing a great podcast that's on my regular rotation— Matt and Eric are genuinely great folks, and it is my honor and privilege to call both of them friends. Learn more about their podcast by going to their website, Ranking76, that's the number 
www.wordpress.com or search for Ranking 76 wherever fine podcasts can be found. One more agenda item before we get started. I feel like I'm saying this more in the Madison Presidency series than I have in any other series, but with so many disparate topics and individuals coming together in the larger narrative of the War of 1812, I do feel that I need to preface this episode with the fact that this is not intended to be an all-encompassing biography of either Tecumseh or Tenskwatawa. Though there are things that you will need to know about both as it relates to the larger narrative of the Madison presidency, it's beyond the scope of this podcast to cover every aspect of their lives. If you are interested in learning more about Tecumseh, I would recommend John Sugden's Tecumseh, A Life. Likewise, for more information about Tenskwatawa, you might want to check out R. David Edmonds' The Shawnee Prophet. Both are sources used for this episode and will be listed in the sources section for this episode on the website, Presidency's Podcast, that's all one word, dot com. I'll also have links to the Ranking 76 episodes on Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa on the website as well. With that said, let's get started. Tecumseh was born to Pekeshkanwal and Methawasaski, somewhere along the Scioto River, in what is now present-day Ohio, though it's not known whether he was born at Chillicothe or at Town. It's also not known exactly what year Tecumseh was born. The years given by folks over the years range from 1764 to 1771, though most likely it's somewhere between 1764 and 1768. A brother named Nahasimu was born a few years later. Then, in the winter of 1774 and 1775, gave birth to triplets. One of the babies died at birth, but the other two would live on and were named Kumskoko and Laloshiga. The latter is the man who would later call himself first Lalawetheka and finally Tenskwatawa. As we've already seen in previous episodes, and as Edmonds notes, quote, the closing decades of the 18th century were dark years for the Indian peoples of the Old Northwest. As Tecumseh biographer Sugden describes, quote, his, i.e. Tecumseh's, was a childhood savaged by the ferocities of war. These were years which, for Tecumseh, were marked by disruption, insecurity, brutality, and want. He knew hunger, fear, and grief. Five times, between 1774 and 1782, Invading armies penetrated his tribe's territory, burning and killing. Tecumseh fled for his life, with his home in flames behind him. The young boys would grow up without a father, for, on October 10, 1774, Pukeshinwal died attacking a militia force from Virginia that had invaded. Part of the conflict was due to the actions of the Haudenosaunee, who you may know as the Iroquois. As described by Sugden, quote, the powerful six nations of the Iroquois Confederacy of New York claimed to have conquered the Ohio country in the previous century, and they were willing to sell part of it to the British, assuring them that the Shawnees and other Indians lived there only by their sufferance. At Fort Stanwix in New York in 1768, the Iroquois established a new Indian boundary line with the British. They surrendered what is now western Pennsylvania and Kentucky for over 10,000 pounds. At a stroke, the Shawnees and other Ohio Indians were deprived of their rich hunting grounds in Kentucky, south 
of the Ohio. Though the Shawnee fought back and did indeed inflict heavy damage on the former British citizens who went on to dub themselves Americans under their new government, ultimately, the folks of European descent won out, and the Shawnee, quote, retreated from the Scioto to the Little and the Great Miami, and then farther upstream. Again from Sugden, quote, the Shawnees had lost control of the land south of the Ohio for good. Now, here's where that caveat that I made at the beginning comes into play, because we're going to skip ahead to 1805. What you need to know here about the brothers is that they take different paths in life. While Tecumseh developed his skills as a hunter and a warrior, the younger Lalawithka, like other young people then and now, went through a period of feeling lost and without purpose. As described by Edmonds, quote, Lalawithka passed his childhood amid such uncertainty. Either abandoned or ignored by parent figures, he overcompensated for his own insecurity through boastful harangues on his own importance. Moreover, during his adolescence, Lalawithka acquired a taste for the white man's firewater, a habit that both increased his bragging and decreased his popularity among the Shawnee. Despite this, he did marry and start a family, but none of his attempts to support his family succeeded, and his drinking worsened. In 1804, however, an opportunity opened up for Lalawithka. The local prophet and medicine man passed away, and as Lalawithka had studied under him, he took his place. As described by Sugden, quote, he had learned the medicinal properties of roots and herbs. Although unable to perform surgery, he could bleed patients, arrest mortification, prescribe sweat baths, and probe bullet wounds. Most crucial of all, he relied upon calling spiritual aid for the sick and driving away competing malignant forces. His skills in this new role were soon put to the test as, starting in February 1805, a disease likely brought by the new settlers of European descent ravaged the Shawnees and nearby Delawares. For a good portion of the year, he and other prophets in the area tried to cure folks with little success. Then, Lalawithka was found seated before a fire in the lodge, unresponsive to all those who tried to rouse him to consciousness. Initially, he was thought to be dead, and preparations began to be made for his burial. Suddenly, though, Lalawithka came out of his trance. As described by Edmonds, quote, slowly regaining his senses, Lalawithka told a strange tale of death, heaven, and resurrection. The vision that Lalawithka relayed to others was of finding himself at a fork in the roads, one path leading to paradise, the other leading to a quote-unquote fiery torture for sinners. Soon after, native peoples from nearby villages started traveling to speak with a man who would be dubbed the prophet. As described by Sugden, quote, listening to the prophet was a deeply moving experience. During a lingering silence that was pregnant with anticipation, he would sit with his eyes closed, his features a mask of gravity and reverence. Then he would speak, eloquently and emphatically, his sonorous tones accompanied by motions of the hands. His address might last half an hour, 
but at every dramatic pause, his followers called out Segi to signify their agreement. He said that whiskey had been made for whites, not Indians, and should not be touched. Sorcerers must throw away their evil medicine, and murder and warfare were wrong. If they refused to reform, he told them, their souls would meet eternal torment in the realm of Mashti Monetu. Falawatka urged his followers to reject white culture, quote, and he opposed land sessions. But in those early days of his religion, he did not incite his followers to acts of violence against the Americans. As noted by Sugden, Lalawithka was only the latest in a line of prophets, as there are at least eight prophets documented as being active between 1740 and 1775, and the doctrines developed from his visions can be ideologically traced to two previous prophets in particular. It would take time for this new prophet to bring some of the established leaders around to the cause, but younger Shawnee proved easier to convince, far as described by historian R. Douglas Hurt, quote, they envisioned a religious union that would protect them and help win back Indian lands. Groups of Delawares and Wyandots also joined in this movement. As described by Sugden, quote, the prophet was not a likable man, but he was the voice of an oppressed people. Around him, the tribes were losing almost everything their lands, security, livelihoods, cultures, dignity, and self-respect, even their very identities. Their villages were disintegrating, divided by factionalism, drunkenness, violence, and the erosion of communal values. The prophet told them to be proud of their Indian heritages, proud and free, to unshackle themselves from the European economies by standing apart from the whites and rediscovering the self-reliance of the past and the richness of their own ways of life. As Lalawithka's renown grew, however, he and his brother Tecumseh, one of the earliest converts to this religious campaign, had to decide what were the next steps for this new movement to take. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. In 1806, the decision was made by the two brothers to establish a new village near Greenville in the state of Ohio. For long-term listeners, that name might sound familiar. The Treaty of Greenville was the one signed there in 1795, ending the conflict dubbed the Northwest Indian War, as described way back in episode 1.28. This was a provocative act as this site was on the U.S. side of the boundary established by that treaty. And people of European descent in the area grew concerned about the steady influx of young warriors flocking to the prophet's village. Both the message of Lalawithka and the land sessions negotiated between 1804 and 1807 by the zealous governor of the Indiana Territory, William Henry Harrison, drove new followers to the village in Greenville. 
Kickapoos from the headwaters of the Sangamon River, as well as Potawatomis from modern-day Illinois, western Michigan, and Wisconsin made their way down to the new village in Ohio. Beyond these changes for Lalawithka, however, folks were starting to notice differences with his brother. As described by Sugden, quote, most obvious was the change in his appearance. Suddenly, Tecumseh reminded older Indians of a past they had thought lost forever. He began to dress in a fashion that had been obsolete for at least half a century. The chief put aside his European shirts, the linen hunting frocks sometimes worn over them, and the cloth leggings, and commonly turned out in simple, neat, and clean suits of soft deerskin. No longer were his frocks and his leather moccasins decorated with the beads and ribbons hawked by whites. Now, he used the dyed quills of the porcupine. Tecumseh also changed his dietary habits, giving up whiskey for good and eating more dishes made from native produce. Again from Sugden, quote, His transformation was less dramatic than his younger brother's, but it was real, nonetheless. Like his brother, Tecumseh would have a specific role in this movement. As Lalawithka led the prophetic aspect of the revival, Tecumseh expanded beyond his place as a minor chief to become a political and, when needed, military leader of a unification movement, starting with the Shawnees, but which would ultimately develop into a pan-native movement aiming to encompass various native nations spanning the eastern portion of the North American continent. Meanwhile, the Jefferson administration, through its agents in the West, was trying to expand its area of influence and secure the safety and defense of the new settlements popping up as folks from the eastern states set out across the Appalachians. One of the most effective agents in the administration's arsenal was the aforementioned William Henry Harrison. Like so many American negotiators with Native peoples, Harrison was not afraid of using underhanded tactics in order to secure a treaty. Case in point, he signed a treaty on August 18, 1804 with the Delaware, in which they relinquished their claims on, quote, lands between the Wabash and Ohio rivers, despite the fact that it was not their land, and they were only living there at the invitation and goodwill of the Miami Confederacy. This was a fact that Harrison knew going in, and indeed, he had intentionally targeted the Delaware for negotiations to secure these lands since, as he informed President Jefferson, they, quote, were far less attached to the land than other tribes. Part of the drive to regularly secure land concessions from Native peoples in the Indiana Territory was due to the growing political opposition to his governorship by certain leaders in the Territory. Harrison found himself caught in the middle of the debate over the future of slavery in the territory as, though he was not opposed to the idea of slavery being legal in Indiana, he also felt that there were greater issues at hand that should be prioritized. With the separation of the more pro-slavery Illinois country from Indiana in 1809, as described in episode 4.4, Harrison was left looking more extreme on the issue as the citizens in the remaining portion of the Indiana Territory trended anti-slavery. Harrison had to do all that he could to retain his position as governor, which meant keeping in good standing with the administration back in Washington, which by 1809 
was now headed by President James Madison. Enemies of Harrison in the Indiana Territory had been feeding Madison negative reports on Harrison for years. So to counter that, Harrison sought to make himself integral to the administration's push for westward expansion. This, of course, meant that he and the two Shawnee brothers would end up in direct opposition, especially when the decision was made to move the Shawnee village from its location in Greenville. As mentioned, the white citizens of Ohio were rather upset about the Prophet and Tecumseh establishing their village so close to their towns, especially since it violated the terms of the Treaty of Greenville. Further, with tensions between the U.S. and Britain heating up in the wake of the Chesapeake Leopard Affair in 1807, as discussed back in episode 3.36, increasingly, the Prophet would be accused of being an agent for the British and of undermining American interest in the West. While Michigan Territorial Governor William Hull would find negotiations over land sessions in June 1807 difficult with Ojibwas, Ottawas, Potawatomis, and Wyandots who had been influenced by the Prophet's teachings, there is no evidence that Lalawithika was at this point actively aligned with the British. This did not stop the Jefferson administration and various members of it, including the Secretary of War and Governor Harrison from believing these rumors. On September 13th, three representatives of Ohio Governor Thomas Kirker rode into the village, and Tecumseh and representatives from the Ojibwas, Ottawas, Potawatomis, Shawnees, Wyandots, and others gathered to hear their message. The Americans expressed the governor's concerns about the growing population of the village at Greenville, especially considering the support some of the native peoples had given to the British in the Revolutionary War. While not going so far as to accuse Lalawithika of being allied with the British, they did convey the anxiety felt by the governor and other Ohio citizens. In response, Tecumseh decided that the time had come to allay the Americans' concerns personally. On September 19, 1807, the governor's three representatives returned to the state capital, Chillicothe, with four chiefs, one of whom was Tecumseh. The description of Tecumseh that was one of the opening quotes came from one of the eyewitnesses at that meeting, which lasted for hours, but after which Governor Kirker was convinced of the Native people's commitment to peace. Not only did he write to President Jefferson to give him assurances, but Kirker even went so far as to dismiss the militia forces that he had gathered due to the perceived threat. As described by Sugden, at this conference at Chillicothe, Tecumseh, quote, was making a plea for coexistence, one of his last. He wanted the Americans to respect the right of the Indians to live and worship in peace as they wished, free from the interference of United States officials and unfriendly tongues. When he returned to Greenville, Tecumseh conferred with his brother Lalawithika, and the two agreed that in early 1808, they would explore the lands along the upper Wabash River in the Indiana Territory to find a new home further away from American settlements and with more abundant natural resources than were available at Greenville. Sugden described this new land which was, quote, two or three miles below the mouth of the Tippecanoe River in what is now Tippecanoe County, Indiana, as follows. Quote, the waters of the Wabash were rich in fish, 
and turtles deposited their eggs on the islands and sandbars that abounded. Narrow tablelands, covered in apple, maple, sycamore, and wildflowers, and dissected by springs that coursed down the hillsides, bordered the Wabash, and there, as well as in the gentle hills, prairies, and groves of trees behind, lived a profusion of wildlife. In its heyday, the village was impressive by Indian standards. 200 bark-sided houses occupied the upper end of the site, on the high ground that overlooked the river some 50 yards distant. On the bottom lands, the Indians beached their canoes. This new home, which white Americans would dub Prophetstown, would offer the Shawnee brothers new opportunities. For Lalawithika, he adopted a new name around this time, Tenskwatawa, which is translated as the open door. This new base of operations would put Tenskwatawa closer to many of his new converts in the Michigan and Indiana territories. This new location would also put them closer to other potential allies. Unbeknownst to the Shawnee, in December 1807, the Governor General of Canada, Sir James Craig, had sent new instructions to British agents engaging with Native peoples. Though they were still, quote, to avoid anything that opened Britain to charges that they were inciting the Indians against the United States. In private meetings, the agents could insinuate to the chiefs that as a matter of course, we shall look for the assistance of our brothers. And they would also be authorized to offer a larger amount, quote, of supplies, including arms and ammunition to the native peoples. At this time, though, the native leaders in the village were still hopeful that they could find a peaceful understanding with the Americans. And thus, as they were getting established in their new village in 1808, Tenskwatawa reached out to Indiana Territorial Governor William Henry Harrison, first through envoys, then in person in a trip to Vincennes, the territorial capital, in August. It should be noted that Harrison had previously criticized Tenskwatawa as, quote, being a British agent and a fool. But after their meeting, Harrison was, quote, inclined to think that the influence which the prophet has acquired will prove rather advantageous to establishing peace in the West between the Americans and the native peoples. As a sign of good faith, Harrison, quote, issued the Indians a few supplies, including ammunition for hunting, and in November, even advanced $102 worth of provisions against the 1809 Shawnee Treaty annuities. This peace, however, would prove quite short-lived, and hedging their bets, while the prophet talked with Harrison, Tecumseh was making overtures to the British. In June 1808, Tecumseh and other native leaders traveled to Fort Malden, a British fort near Amherstburg in Upper Canada. Over the next month, British officials met with the native peoples, and this proved to be a pivotal opportunity for Tecumseh. Again from Sugden, quote, Without committing himself, he, Tecumseh, had established a rapport with the Redcoats. And, no less important, he had increased his personal standing among large numbers of Indians to boot. Even the proud Wyandots bowed to the greater experience of the Shawnees as intertribal diplomats. Together, Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa have been able to achieve a balance in their relations with the Americans, the British, and other Native peoples. But there was only so long they were able to walk this tightrope. 
in the relationship with the Americans was thrown off due to tensions with Native peoples in the Illinois country and the upper Mississippi River region that the Shawnee brothers had been working to bring into the fold. In April 1809, a party of Winnebago's traveled to the village to meet with Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa about the encroachment of American military posts further into their territory. The Winnebago's were ready to attack these posts and were looking for support, but neither of the Shawnee brothers thought this was a wise move. News of this visit reached Governor Harrison, and he raised up a militia in Vincennes. As had been done before, Tenskwatawa set out on a tour, first to Fort Wayne, then to Vincennes, to meet with American officials, to assuage their fears, and assure them that he and his people had no intentions of attacking Americans. Ultimately, the Winnebago plot came to little more than a quickly repulsed attack on Fort Dearborn in what is now modern-day Chicago in August 1809. Despite, or perhaps because of, the fears inspired amongst the white settlers at this offensive action by the Winnebagos, it would be the Americans that would drive the two Shawnee brothers into the arms of the British and into opposition to their aims in the area. At that point, the boundary between native lands and areas open to American settlement was only 21 miles north of Vincennes. Especially after the Illinois country split off into its own territory, if the remaining Indiana Territory were ever to achieve statehood, Harrison would have to figure out a way to increase its population. And to the governor, the answer was clear. They would need the native peoples to cede more land for Americans to develop. Now, as historian Robert Owens points out, quote, the entire territory factoring in the loss of Illinois, had only 24,500 white settlers spread over several million acres. Had he the opportunity to do so, Harrison would likely counter Owens' statement by asserting, as he did in explaining the situation to Secretary of War William Eustace, that some of the land south of Vincennes was, quote, sunken and wet, while the land to the north was more suitable to agricultural development. Furthermore, With more land between the native peoples and the white settlers, a fort could be established closer to Prophetstown to better ensure the security of Vincennes and the settlements around that town. Thus, Harrison had the Indian agent at Fort Wayne summon native leaders to a conference at that fort in mid-September. Tecumseh, as well as the other chiefs, knew what this likely meant. Negotiations for more land sessions. Prior to Tecumseh stepped up his outreach to Native peoples in Ohio in what Sugden described as, quote, the first of his journeys in the cause of Indian unity. His message was clear. The Indians must stand together to save their lands, their cultures, and their independence, as they had done 20 years before. They must revive the great confederacy for which many of their fathers have fought. The land was the common property of all the tribes, and its defense was the responsibility of all. While Tecumseh was recruiting, Harrison made preparations for the Fort Wayne negotiations, which included ensuring that he had, at least in part, a friendly audience once they began. Again, from Sugden, quote, The negotiations at Fort Wayne that September were well managed, but they fell short of the standards that justice or even the federal government demanded. 
Harrison packed the proceedings with members of the populous and needy Potawatomi villages. Not the western Potawatomis who would have nothing to do with the treaty, but those of the St. Joseph River in southeastern Michigan. Like most Indians, the Potawatomi were suffering greatly at this time, hit by the fall in the price of peltries and the depletion of the game. Harrison knew full well that the Indians were more miserable than they have ever been and half-starved. Meanwhile, the invitations to some of the native peoples who would have been in opposition to any land concessions somehow got lost in the mail, despite the fact that these peoples did have clear rights to the lands in question as outlined in previous treaties. Imagine that. Nearly 1,400 native peoples gathered at Fort Wayne for the negotiation, and Harrison understood that his reputation and likely his continuance in his public post would hinge on the successful negotiation of a treaty. In the spirit of doing anything to get his way, Harrison authorized providing two gallons of liquor to each tribe after a request from the Miami chiefs. One month prior, quote, Harrison had issued a proclamation forbidding the sale or distribution of liquor to Indians within a 35-mile radius of Vincennes. But this was Fort Wayne, not Vincennes. And Harrison was a man on a mission. For some context from Owens, quote, Whereas the fort issued fewer than 25 pints of whiskey in a normal month, in July, it issued only six pints. Between September and October, the 1,390 Indians present consumed over 7,000 gills, about 218 gallons of whiskey. In speech after speech, Harrison urged them that selling large tracts of land was ultimately to their benefit, as this would end up in them unloading less than desirable lands to the Americans versus their proposal of selling land per acre. If they were buying by acre, Harrison told them, the Americans would only pick the best of lands and leave the poorer quality tracts for the native peoples. He also trotted out the oft-repeated but to-date not-followed-through promise that this would be the last land session that the United States would request of them. Ultimately, Harrison got his wish, and nearly 3 million acres of new land were acquired through the 1809 Treaty of Fort Wayne at a cost of less than two cents per acre. Let's let that one sink in for a moment. In terms of American society, Harrison was lauded when he returned home from Fort Wayne. As described by Harrison biographer Freeman Cleves, quote, a gathering of citizens and a public dinner awaited Harrison's return to Vincennes. Toasts were drunk to the treaty, and statehood within five years was forecast. The Indiana legislature and the militia officers of Knox County adopted resolutions recommending his, i.e. Harrison's, appointment for a fourth term as governor, not only because of his superior military talents, but also his integrity, patriotism, and firm attachment to the general government. Indeed, even before receiving news of the Treaty of Fort Wayne, President Madison was convinced to give Harrison another term as territorial governor. Despite the acclamation that Harrison had received in the territorial capital, his political enemies would use this too against the governor, including one 
who corresponded with Secretary of the Treasury Gallatin. As this opponent wrote to Gallatin, quote, It is my opinion that government ought to look closer into this business, for the Indians want nothing but good treatment to become well-disposed to the United States. Meanwhile, news of the treaty was received a bit differently by the native peoples, as you would imagine. Again from Sugden, quote, The Treaty of Fort Wayne was a watershed. It spread disaffection to tribes such as the Miami, who had previously been counted friends of the Americans, and exhausted what remained of the patience of Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa. It was a stark vindication of Tecumseh's complaints, and it materially affected the course of Indian relations with the United States and Britain. For Tecumseh, the Treaty of Fort Wayne was a line in the sand that had been crossed, and he would redouble his efforts to seek a confederated native response to American expansionism. In this, though, the leadership power dynamic between him and his brother changed. As Sugden described, quote, Before he, Tecumseh, had been content to stand in his brother's shadow, he was the chief of the band, handled the diplomacy, and evidently took ultimate responsibility for most of the decisions. But still, to the public eye, he was simply the most important supporter of the prophet. As the years passed, it became obvious that Tecumseh, rather than his brother, was the engine room of the Confederacy. After the Treaty of Fort Wayne, he exercised control more openly, effectively setting the agenda. To be sure, Tecumseh's plans were an uphill battle. Quote, In 1810, the population of the white settlements in Ohio and the territories of Indiana, Illinois, and Michigan amounted to 270,000. Against this, the Indian population of the Great Lakes area was little more than 70,000. Though he didn't know the statistics, Tecumseh in his travels saw the writing on the wall on the ground level. However, if they could expand the cause beyond the Old Northwest and draw in native peoples from more distant lands who were, like the Shawnee and their allies, facing the impact of American expansionism, perhaps they could coordinate a response to match the threat of the United States. Meanwhile, we shouldn't forget that the British are out there with their wink-wink, nudge-nudge messaging of possibly providing support should the Native peoples put up a viable opposition to the Americans. There was an opening here, and Tecumseh planned to take full advantage of it. His plans, however, were thrown off by the reality of the moment. The winter of 1809-1810 was a challenging season for the Native peoples remaining in the Old Northwest as, quote, game was scarce, and the prophet accused the Americans of poisoning the land. In the spring, exceptional numbers of Indians applied for help at the British post of Fort Malden and St. Joseph, hungry, impoverished, and discontented. Furthermore, Tecumseh was struggling to keep the Confederacy together. He did not attend an intertribal conference in late May, but his representatives were unable to convince a majority of those in attendance to support taking the fight to the Americans. Meanwhile, with news of these rumblings reaching Harrison, he began making preparations to defend Vincennes 
including raising two militia companies on June 25th, who were then joined by a force of U.S. regulars a couple of weeks later. Ultimately, despite his anger over American treatment of Native peoples as of late, Tecumseh had to consider whether it would be best to enter into a new round of negotiations with Governor Harrison. In July, he sent two Shawnees to Vincennes to assure the governor that the Native chiefs were not in favor of war with the Americans, and Harrison, in turn, sent his own messenger to Prophetstown. Though Harrison's message was addressed to Tenskwatawa, who he still thought was the leader of the movement, it would ultimately be Tecumseh who met with Harrison's agent, who went back and forth between Vincennes and the native village, finalizing arrangements for Tecumseh and a delegation to travel to Vincennes to express their views of the Treaty of Fort Wayne. By early to mid-August, Tecumseh and a group of around 75 warriors were on their way to the capital of the Indiana Territory. The Native Party arrived on the 15th. As agreed, most of the Native Party were left outside of the town, while only a dozen chiefs accompanied Tecumseh as he made his way, quote, toward a clearing in a small grove of trees close to Grouseland, Governor William Henry Harrison's two-story house with its tall chimneys. According to Harrison biographer Freeman Cleves, Tecumseh found the governor on his porch, and Harrison greeted him and invited him to enjoy, quote, the hospitality of his home, but Tecumseh asked merely to pitch his tent under an elm tree. In preparation for the beginning of negotiations, a platform had been set up on the lawn with chairs for Harrison, Tecumseh, and other Indiana officials. Upon Tecumseh's arrival, the governor offered him a chair, but the native leader asserted that, quote, the earth was the most proper place for the Indians, as they liked to repose upon the bosom of their mother, and promptly took a seat with his party on the grass. As described by Jay Feldman, quote, At 37, Harrison was five years younger than Tecumseh. The governor, who had many years of experience intimidating defeated and accommodationist chiefs, was taken aback by the Shawnee's boldness. As Sugden notes, quote, of the two men who now faced each other, Tecumseh was the more striking and impassioned. The handsome chief saw before him a long-faced man with brown hair, a wandering nose, and a mild but alert expression. The public in Vincennes was fascinated by this outdoor meeting and gathered at the fence line of the clearing to watch each day. Days of speeches went on back and forth with neither side budging in their position. Tecumseh made impassioned pleas outlining how the Americans had, time and again, done all they could to undermine the native peoples and destabilize their societies and cultures. Harrison, quote, insisted that he had always treated the Indians honorably and justly, and that Tecumseh was the first to accuse him of acting otherwise. Harrison also stated that he had heard reports blaming Tecumseh for stirring up trouble between the Northwestern tribes and the United States. As described by Sugden, quote, Harrison had spent years speaking to Indian leaders, but he had never met one like Tecumseh before. Here was no humble supplicant or surly dissembler. The man standing before him boldly claimed to represent every tribe on the continent candidly denounced the land sessions, and fiercely declared his determination to resist them. 
Although he disavowed hostile intentions, he predicted that war would be the result of American policies and showed no fear of it. Some might have been moved by Tecumseh's oratory. Harrison was not one of those folks. Again from Sugden, quote, As far as he, Harrison, was concerned, the land had been bought from its rightful owners, and the idea that the Indians held land in common was not only manifestly preposterous, but dangerous. It would undo every treaty he had made and block the further purchases he had in mind. To this point, cordiality had been maintained, but three days in, and one of the men lost control. While Harrison was defending the U.S. government and its interactions with Native peoples as being honorable and just, Tecumseh, quote, rose to his feet in anger, gesticulating violently. The warriors at his back also stood. They had left their firearms behind, as the parties had agreed, but their hands fell to war clubs, knives, and tomahawks. Tecumseh, quote, spoke for some time with great vehemence and anger, but as they spoke through translators, there was still an opportunity for him to walk back his words. However, he instructed the interpreter to, quote, tell him he lies. With tensions running high, the Indiana Territorial Secretary John Gibson ordered the American military forces, which were on hand nearby, to be summoned. Harrison drew his dress sword, while, quote, a civilian scurried to the governor's house to find a gun to defend Harrison's family, and other citizens pulled rails from a fence to defend themselves. For a moment, it seemed like the gathering was about to explode into violence. But Harrison took charge of the situation and ordered the interpreter, quote, to tell Tecumseh the council was finished. He would reply to the Indians' complaints in writing, and if the chief wanted to speak to him again, he must act through another person. With that, the two sides retreated to their respective corners. Harrison spent the night fearful that the native peoples were about to launch a strike on the town and gathering three militia companies just in case, while Tecumseh used the time to reflect on his mistake. The next morning found the interpreter waiting on the governor with a message from the native chief. Quote, Tecumseh readily apologized for his conduct. After some reflection of his own, Harrison gave his approval for the council to come back together that afternoon, though he also made sure the militia was nearby, just in case. Despite the resumption of talks, it soon became apparent that nothing was going to be gained from further discussions. Neither leader would back down. Harrison ultimately agreed to send Tecumseh's complaints to President Madison, quote, but he very much doubted that the chief's terms would be acceptable. To this, the Shawnee chief replied, quote, as the great chief, i.e. the president, is to determine the matter, I hope the great spirit will put some sense into his head to induce him to direct you to give up this land. It is true he is so far off. He will not be injured by the war. He may still sit in his town and drink his wine, whilst you and I will have to fight it out. We'll have to leave matters in the West here for the moment, for our time together is slowly drawing to a close. There will be much more to this history, believe you me, 
But in order to understand all the events that were happening around the same period of time, we must turn our attention to events happening in other parts of the Western Hemisphere, as well as the Iberian Peninsula, in an episode I'd like to call The Spanish Dilemma. In the meantime, special thanks again to Matt and Eric of the Ranking 76 podcast for providing the intro quotes for this episode. And be sure to check out Ranking 76 anywhere fine podcasts can be found. You can also go to their website, which is Ranking76, that's the numbers 76.wordpress.com. And a link to their website will be on the source notes section for this episode. I'd also like to thank Christian of Your Podcast Pal for his audio editing work on this episode. Christian's work is invaluable in providing me more time to research, record, and promote the podcast, while at the same time knowing that the audio quality is going to be on point thanks to his editing skills. If you'd like to enlist Christian services for your podcast or audio project, check out his website at yourpodcastpal, that's all one word, dot com. Special thanks also to the Itinerant Band for allowing us the use of clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty as the intro and outro music for this episode. Highly recommend checking out their music anywhere fine music can be found. Or you can learn more about them through the link on the source notes section for this episode on the website, which is Presidency's Podcast, that's all one word, dot com. There, you can find past episodes, tons of resources to learn more about each of the presidents, and information about how you, yes, you, dear listener, can help support the podcast. It only takes a minute to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Good Pods, or any other podcast platform that has that capability. So I hope you'll consider doing so to let folks know why they too should listen to presidencies. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to drop me a line at presidenciespodcast, again, all one word, at gmail.com, or reach out to me on social media. I'm on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. That's right, all one word. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.